Welcome to episode 115 of Evolving with Corey Castle. I'm Corey Castle, and I'm joined today um, by somebody whose birthday it is today. And I'm hanging with probably the most special person I've ever met in my entire life. You know, the first person I ever met in my entire life, my mother. This is Mary Beth Goins. Hello. It's my birthday, and it's James's birthday. Oh, yeah, James. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we share a birthday. This is a this is a fun a fun thing that we've always had to had to celebrate. Uh, you know what? Sometimes like it was a weird thing today. Like I started going around in my head about like thinking about like what if either one ever either one of us ever lost the other one like. How hard our birthdays will be after that, like that stuff. I had to deal with that. That stuff messed with me just today, thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, thirty-five years, and now it finally crept into my head. But it never, never was a thought before. You had to deal with that one. Like, I dealt with that the year that you had the seizure. Like when your birthday was coming, I was so grateful that I had you there to celebrate with. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I thought of it. But I didn't think of it in the terms of, like, being on your end of it, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I a lot of times I think about that, and, and I think about, think about, like, the, and I say it on here a lot, and I don't, I don't know if you've heard me say it, but uh, I'll, I'll say, like, a lot, a lot of people who become parents had a whole other identity first. They were a whole other person before they became that mom or dad, and then they just sacrificed who they were to be that role now. So, like, you kind of weren't anything anymore besides my mom. No, and I didn't have much identity before that. I was somebody's daughter, then somebody's wife, then somebody's mother. I didn't have a whole lot of time to to build an identity of my own. I was somebody's sister... You know, somebody's daughter. I was not... I didn't have a whole lot of time to build an identity of my own in order to then lose it to being a mom. So mm-hmm. becoming a mom just was easy for me. Right, so it was just another role that you Yeah, were. it was absolutely another role. Yeah, I mean... Much better role I was than say, that was the what I liked I was before. Yeah, like, much, a much how, how more compared? fulfilling... Unconditional love role than all of the other roles I had. So, I think probably my entire life I've always said uh, your story is more interesting than most people who like make stories up for a living. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most most stories that people would write and uh, like where you came from to. And and what, like, what other members of your family uh, and you are legit, they're so different. And I I say it all the time, and I know it's just words, but I try to show you as much as possible that I appreciate you for every single part of really sticking with me. Right. (laughs) And letting me, like, letting me figure out who I am, because I... I've been a weirdo, like a total weirdo, forever, and uh, that's okay. Weirdos I, make the world go round. Yeah, I mean, I, I 
I was a weirdo insecurity, like insecure weirdo. Now I'm sort of more secure in my weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you've ena- you enabled that a lot. I mean, uh, whenever it comes to anybody who compliments me or, you know, asks me about a lesson or something, I always say I learned it from you. And um, you, you stepped in and were both roles. And Not that I chose that, but right. when it was thrust upon me, I did the best I could. And the reason I encouraged everything was because I had no preconceived ideas of what I expected or wanted my children to be, except to be happy, to be fulfilled. That was, that's all I've ever wanted. Do you think that, like, like there wasn't like a, there wasn't an expectation for you as a child to like grow up, be a, be a wife and a mother from your parents. They didn't put that on. You go to school, you go to college, you do this, you do that. Like they didn't have a mapped out plan for you because they were too selfish and wrapped up in their own stuff to think about like where their children's future were heading. Right? No, there was no talk of college. I mean, this was the seventies and women didn't go to college. Right. Um, your expectation was you graduated from high school, you became a secretary, a nurse, uh, a teacher, or a wife. Mm-hmm. They were kind of your. There were a couple more options, but not a lot. Yeah. And anybody that wanted to get a little off the beaten path, they were kind of discouraged from that. Yeah. Well, I mean, my father expected good grades from everybody. That's the only time he paid attention to us was mm-hmm. when report cards came in. Yeah. He looked over our report cards. If we if we did good, he just set the report card on the table. If we did bad, we got our name called. Mm-hmm. I never did bad because I didn't want my name called. So I don't know what happened after your name got called. But you've did you witness it with your siblings? Jimmy. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was he was brutal with Jimmy. Well, kind of sort of unbox that a little bit because I don't think I know that part as much. I mean, well, I've I think, heard your perspective a bit, but I have not heard every piece of the puzzle, you know? Because there's so many pieces, I can't even get it all apart at the different times. But Jimmy, I believe, you know, in retrospect, had ADD, ADHD, mm-hmm. a learning disability. Um, so as hard as he tried, he couldn't do well especially in Catholic school, because the expectations were higher. There were no special education back then. There was no special education. But, I mean, that kind of, that goes, like, unrecognized things is kind of a theme with him. Like, that, like, MS was mm-hmm. like unrecognized until post-mortem. Like, until right. you got diagnosed. <clears throat> like, many, what, what he, he passed in 92? 91, I 91. So, and then you got diagnosed in 98. Yeah. So it was a while before you had ever figured out that the lesions were the connectivity. Mm-hmm. Like the thing, see if you can, if you can explain it a little bit better, because uh, I don't want to made the, the, It made me realize was his, we won't get into all the details of his passing and his death, but in his autopsy, they said that his, his, um, he had lesions on his spine. 
which at the time I could never figure out what that meant. Because how do you get lesions, which are open sores, inside of your body? So I walked around with that, not understanding that for years. And then when I started having symptoms and I got diagnosed with the MS, MS is multiple sclerosis, which is multiple scars. And it is lesions in your brain and on your spinal cord that cause the electrical impulse messages not to get to where they're supposed to get in your body. So that's when the light went on that I realized that Jimmy's, that Jimmy had multiple sclerosis, but he was undiagnosed. And that's part of what he passed from. It, it was not all of what he passed from. He passed from uh, a, a medication uh, interaction because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So they just kept giving him different medications. And it was the interaction that he died from. So I can, I mean, I want you to kind of go back to the, the, the relationship with your father that, that he had with uncle Jimmy and well, your brother. Uh, and if, if you can sort of, for the most part, there was no relationship with my father, with any of us. He told my mom before he married her he did not want children. Mm-hmm. He made it clear to us that he did not want us, never wanted us, didn't care about us. Um, but his expectations, since we were there anyway, his expectations were that we do well in school and follow all the norms and eat up and shut up and... Um, Anything that happens in this house stays in this house. Everything was a secret. Um, and anything that Jimmy did that was the slightest bit unmanly, mm-hmm. he got he got beat up for yeah. to make a man out of him. He, um, so what's considered unmanly? Um, well, my father loved guns. Right. So he would... I think there was a time... I've heard this story, but I wasn't there to see this. He... He used to shoot birds in the backyard or shoot at birds in the backyard, Mm -hmm. and he wanted Jimmy to come and do that. And Jimmy didn't want to kill a bird because he was a peaceful Mm. person. Right. And my father was really angry with him, and I believe that he he punished him for not shooting a bird. Mm. And another time, Jimmy was young, and he pretended to shave with my father's razor, and my father threw him down the steps. Because he touched his razor. That's a, that's a manly thing. Hmm? Right, yeah. But but you weren't allowed to touch anything that was my father's. That, and, uh, I, that, yeah, that, that wound up being the theme in who you wound up marrying. Because he was the same way. Yeah, nobody could touch anything Anything, that was his. anything of my father's. He, he, would, he would break his own shit. Rather than have something Rather else than touch have it. you touch it, yeah. right? Like, I... I mean, man, it, he was only around back in my life. From like... Two years. Two, three years. Yeah, maybe, maybe like, uh, three years if you incl- include those Sundays. In the, right, in right, the, the Sundays, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what an impact. Like, what a... What a uh, <laughs> what an example for what a man shouldn't be. Yeah. And, uh... Uh, sorry, it's kind of going all over the place, but um, so you're you're growing up then with 
So both parents being alcoholics. Right. Um, like really, really heavy alcoholics, right? Yeah. And that they wanted that to be... They shamed... Like, did they find shame in that and they wanted to keep that a secret? Or they wanted to keep the abuse a secret? Even though, like, the well, neighborhood it just knew? kind of ran back in the 70s, 60s, 60s and 70s that... You just, I guess that was the way they were raised, that you were quiet, because my grandmother was around until I was eight, mm -hmm. and she was the same way, like, don't tell anybody that this happened, or don't tell anybody that that happened, and don't, you know, don't say anything about what happens in this house, or what happens in this house stays in this house, so she controlled my father and mother's drinking while she was alive. Yeah. And when she died, then my they, mother started she drinking She controlled it, meaning like, they... they they behaved because of her? Yeah, she controlled the money, so they couldn't, like... And, they, yes, and they were... And they, they knew... They were like children. They were being... Um, they did what my grandmother told them to do. Yeah. And that was that was your mom's mom? Or no, that, that was my that father's was father mom. mom. And uh, when she died, my mom's drinking started heavy. Mm -hmm. and, and she drank for... She was the heavy drinker. It was They didn't spend a whole lot of time being alcoholics together at the same time. Right. My father was sort of stable with mm -hmm. his drinking. He'd have a few beers every night, go to bed. Right. My mom's drinking was out of control. She would drink to the point, and she would smoke, so she caught the house on fire several times. And uh, we would wake my father up to get her to calm down because she would be so bad that we couldn't stop her and at that time we were Bernadette was 16 Jimmy was 14 Terry was 12 and I was like 10 so you know a bunch of kids can't stop an adult from going out and getting mm. more beer right. and driving drunk to the bar to get it right. so when well, she would you get send kids to get to get it for you back then huh couldn't you send kids to get no, it for no, you No, no, no. The bar down the corner closed at 10 o'clock. Mm -hmm. So she would run out of beer at 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Then she'd have to go to the bar that was like four blocks away. Right. And she, you're not going to... In that day and age, you didn't send your kids out at 11 o'clock at night right. for any reason. Okay. Not without the whole world and the neighbors, neighbors knowing. And the, that's like a, that's like a, a, a move... Of uh, shame that or your shame won't allow you to make a move like that. Right. So right. you know we would try sometimes to water her beard down. Mm -hmm. We would hide it from her. And uh, the one night that Jimmy tried to stop her from going to the bar, she pulled a knife and said that she was going to stab him if he didn't get out of the way. So we kind of figured out we weren't going to stop her from doing stuff. So if she got really bad, we would wake my father up, and then. He would stop her. He would get her to calm down and go to bed or go to sleep at least. Well, was there like hell for waking him up though? Like, did you get? Yeah, did you we get... didn't do it lightly. We right. we did not do it lightly. Like she had to be really bad before we would wake him up, hmm. and then she would just you know like be angry with him and be trying to hit him and stuff. And he would just sit her down on the couch and be like, "Bernie, go to sleep." Hmm. And uh, then she would calm down a little bit. He'd go back to bed. And then, you know, many times she would then lay down, and one of us, most of the time, one of us would stay with her until she fell asleep. But she still would have her cigarettes, and she would wake up, light a cigarette, and fall asleep. And the cigarette would wind up either on the floor and start the carpet on fire, or on a couch cushion and start the couch cushion on fire, which we were like the, the 
everyone saw the burned up couch cushion out on the lawn mm. on the morning, you know, like right. everyone knew that the Burke house was the this most dysfunctional house on the well, block. Like, the like we were not too, right? that was when my father started drinking, not when my mom. Mm. My mom would get on the phone with people, my like her mother her adopted mother, or she would call the hospital where she worked and right. say, "You know that, you know that Margaret Curry is my mother. I'm a bastard, and I'm adopted, and all that. And right. she got pregnant with me, and all that stuff. So well, she like, would embarrass her. The, the timeline kind of gets messed up for her as far as uh, like uh, kind of ancestry and figuring mm-hmm. out where she came from, or even for you or for I to decide try to dig back." Mm-hmm. Now that that is a thing that's available, considering that she was adopted through, uh, how how that come up? Uh, St. Vincent's Home for Kids. Okay. Her mom had her and then kept her in the orphanage for two years until um, she lost her job. And mm-hmm. then they put my mom up for adoption, and the Millers adopted her. Mm-hmm. And at some point, when she was like 18, she found out she was adopted because she was looking for her baptismal record, mm-hmm. and they didn't have a baptismal record for Bernadette Miller. Mm-hmm. They only had one for Bernadette Curry, mm-hmm. and that's how she found out she was adopted, because her mother, her birth mother... Curry spelled which way? C-U-R-R-Y. Uh-huh. Her birth mother was um, had her christened, had mm-hmm. her baptized. Right. I and didn't the, know that. That's something I didn't know. I didn't even know the name. I, it was Her mother was Margaret Curry. And from the story we heard, and again, it's all stories. We don't know how much is true. Mm-hmm. She was raped in the dentist chair mm-hmm. when she was in having dental work done. They, mm-hmm. She was put under, um, and she never knew... I guess she knew something was wrong, but she didn't know for sure until she found out she was pregnant a couple months later. Wow. And uh, and she moved from upstate Pennsylvania because of the shame, mm-hmm. moved down here to Philadelphia, and got a job and had my mom. And is then it, is it is it strange that how like sort of like certain things were, are repeating themselves? We're finding like little patterns in that, like uh, with like Brandon Brandon's birth and all that, like that. That's sort of a pattern that re- repeated itself. Well, that's from, a pattern of, uh, uh, and then women, women, uh, women becoming victims, and then, then raising more victims. Right. The so victim mentality is is passed sister, down. Your sister was also raped and gave birth. Date raped. Right. And and then, you know, I guess I guess it was a different time. Right, so there wasn't as much shame, so there was no adoption or anything like that. With Bernadette? Right. No, well, well, I mean, she, she considered other options. Right. But, yeah. um, she, she never, she didn't talk about that for years afterwards. Right. I mean, I, I've only heard it through whispers. Like, hmm? I've said, I've probably only heard it through whispers, and you know, right. like, she's never talked about it openly with me. She doesn't talk about it. No. I, I mean, it Brendan doesn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't get talked about. It's, you know, the story um, was, you know, so much you hear these days, but back then you didn't talk about it. She went to the bar pretty much once a week to hang out with her friend, Diane. Mm-hmm. And um, Diane had children and was married. 
and and they met some people at the bar and they got to be friendly with them. They were just bar friends. And Diane got called home because one of her kids was sick. So the guy said to Ann Tugger, or Bernadette, she said, oh, you want to go to a party with me? And she thought that she knew him. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, sure. And uh, when they, you know, he, they got in the car and they started, they started driving somewhere. And as they were approaching the door of this place that was supposed to be the party, she said, she stopped and she said, I don't hear anything. And at that point, what I heard is that he pulled a knife and said, and pushed her in the door oh. to his apartment and raped her. And then, just like the the horrible things that you hear, he drove her home and dropped her off. Right. So he felt no shame in what he did. Right. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. He took her to his apartment. I mean, who's to say she's the only one he's done that to? Like. Oh, I'm sure he's. I'm sure uh, she's not. You right, know. Right. So, it it it's like normally people who get caught for that thing didn't get caught because they did it once. Right. They get caught because they've done it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a thing I said to Justin, like, well, like, when, a couple, a couple, I don't even remember. When when he was, like, hooking up with that kid who had a girlfriend. Oh, yeah. And he was like, oh, he said I was the first one, the first guy he's ever been with. I'm like, yeah, he tells that to every guy, dude. Like, mm. you're, that's not, like, let's not, let's not be naive. Yeah. Um, Justin is naive, though. Yeah. <clears throat> But there's just so much, there's so much stuff that, you know, if somebody would sit with me and write stuff down, because I forget some of the stuff and how horrendous it was. And then when I get, um, when I get a load of crap from, um, people that, you know, I did things wrong, I'm like, I did the best I could considering my, my beginnings. Well, I mean, okay, so let's, let's sort of like, like, break it down in the way it went. So, you're, you're the fourth born mm-hmm. out of five kids. Right. Uh, to, to alcoholic parents. Mm-hmm. Abusive alcoholic parents. Um, not, and, not so much physically abusive. Well. I, I've heard some stories. Yeah, it like, was not directed at me a lot of the times. They weren't overly, let me say they weren't overly abuse, physically abusive right. for that time. Right. You know, like everybody hit their kids back then. It was like not a big deal. They weren't, like they didn't burn us with cigarettes. They didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of physical abuse. Right. It was, it was inappropriate uh, discipline. Right. At times, like in this day and age, they go to jail for that, but back right. then it was not a big deal. Right. Well, you said that he threw Uncle Jimmy down the steps. I mean, yes, that's physically abuse. That was physical abuse. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Like, a not that was not necessarily. My father did not direct that at the girls. Right. He was going to toughen him up and make a man out of him. Right. And he then got sent to like a home or like a. No, he or, went he, to a home after. But not my father didn't do that. He didn't that. get he, sent to like a like a boarding school. He did. School he anything. got in a lot of trouble, and yeah. he got into drugs. Yeah. And ultimately, my mother put him in a home to save his life. Okay. Well, how old was he at that point? Seventeen. Yeah. 
Well, he was like, was he like huffing paint or something? Mm-hmm. Was he like huffing paint or something? He would, he would huff, he would huff glue. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, that's like you're, you're just messing with your brain chemistry at that Yeah. Point. Like, real mm-hmm. bad. Like, he, he, um, <clears throat> he tried to kill himself five times in six months. The the version of him that I knew was a good role model and a good man. I mean, mm-hmm. that was it, 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 like it's something I I struggle with pretty often about. Like I always say, like my male role models and not having a whole lot of them was like he was one for sure. But he died when I was seven, so right. I he, didn't really get him for that long. He would strive to be the best man that he could be, but he he didn't have a lot he didn't have a role model. Right. He had my Uncle Bill and and my Uncle Bill was in the military, so a lot of us we looked up to him. Right. He was but he was he made promises he never kept. He he meant well. Mm-hmm. But he was not a good role model in that way. Right. Um my father was a horrible role model. He drank he he was a good role model in his in his work ethic that he went to work every day and he bought his check home and he came home from work every night he wasn't he didn't drink outside the house that much he like would come home eat his dinner go to the bar have a beer bring two quarts home drink them and go to bed hmm. so in that way he was he was it, this is early in in this whole thing is it after my grandmother died um, well, didn't you say after she died, they bought like a beer miser? They bought with... a beer miser with the insurance money. <laughs> yeah. So like the settlement... Kind of indicative of where the future was going. Right, yeah. like Then and you said like some of the neighbors would just come over when it got refilled or something? Was it like, or was that... Eh, somewhat, yeah. Like, the, the, they would have a, a delivery like, I guess, like every Friday. Mm-hmm keg would come in half a keg whatever it is every Friday like they're drinking a whole keg every week half a keg a whole half keg every week that's still a lot right well we had the neighbors and we had a bunch of teenagers yeah well like <laughs> uh, you guys Jimmy and Terry yeah. no I was too young to know there was a game to be played there right um not Aunt Tugger so much she was older she was in high school and she was doing mm. her own thing outside well, she of the was house a da- she was a ballet dancer right no that was when she was older Okay. No, she was in cheerleading, the drill drill team stuff right. like that yeah. in high school. But so um, like they, like it seems like everyone had sort of an identity. Like we had an identity when my grandmother was around. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Bernadette had one because she was the oldest, mm-hmm. and she got a chance to be a teenager mm-hmm. before before my grandmother died. She was. 15 when my grandmother died so she had while my grandmother was alive there was a little bit of innocence and a little bit of normal right you know there was some things that happened but they were kind of shielded we were shielded more from that because my grandmother was around and once so Bernadette got to be in high school and got involved in things in high school Mm -hmm. like if you talk to my siblings, you know that Bernadette, Jimmy, and Terry all learned how to swim because my grandmother was alive when they were at an age where mm. they would learn how to swim. Right. Once my grandmother died, I was seven. 
But in re- I'm sorry to think about it. My grandmother was sick for about a year and a half, two years before she died. Mm-hmm. So we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go to lakes. We didn't go to pools. We didn't get out of the house because she was so sick. So from like six, maybe from the time I was six to seven, eight, she was sick. So not we didn't do many things. Is so she the one? I didn't learn how to swim. I didn't learn a lot of the things that you normally learn between six and eight. I had to teach myself how to ride a bike, like. Yeah, we, those things. We taught we taught you how to swim when you were like thirty seven years I, old. Yeah, I taught myself how to swim. Right. I was older because I watched you swim, and mm-hmm. I taught myself. Right. <coughs> um, Let's see the one more. Is is your grandmother the one? Okay, she was your nanny. My nanny. Yeah. And then, then your mom was our nanny. Right. Uh, nanny said that she sat and watched. Um. Your grandmother died. Yeah, my gra- my mother took care of my nanny. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So she sat and watched your father's mother die. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that part has always been foggy. She took to me. care of her while mm-hmm. she was really sick because right. my father had minimal compassion. Like he loved his mother, mm-hmm. but he didn't know what to do to help her. So right. he just went to work and didn't. He wasn't involved. What my, was his job? He he was he did locksmith. He worked for a, a saw sharpening company. He was like a jack of all trades, master mm-hmm. of none. Like he didn't. He worked in in different trades and stuff. So he just went to work, and um, my mother took care of my grandmother while she was sick. Until so, as a kid, and I mean maybe you don't remember this, but I mean you guys were like in Catholic school, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All through Catholic schools. Do you went to church every Sunday? Yeah. For the yeah, most part? pretty sure we did. Like, what was your thought process on, like, what the spirituality was and, like, what God was? Oh, you just went to church and you did no, what was you was told and God was that you know, big. Like, was heaven and hell, all that stuff? Oh, like, yeah. God was, God was that guy so, with the white beard up in the sky that judged you for everything like, you did. So you had the guilt on top of Oh, the, yeah, the Catholic school guilt and the... The guild at home, like so anything that the, you did the shame. Wrong. So keeping keeping the the privacy mm-hmm. of home also had to do with the the shame and guilt and the fear of hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so you had you had been sold all of that. And, oh yeah, and yeah. believed it hard. Mm-hmm. Now, what were your like role models? What were your inspirations? What were your archetypes? I, to this day, don't think I had any. No? No, I, I, I thank the universe all the time for giving me, for, I want to say, in an egotistical way, that I was born with a certain character that gave me the strength to overcome the fact that I didn't have a role model mm-hmm. and I didn't have anywhere to look. My main mantra as a kid and even into teen years and older was, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. Mm-hmm. And I don't want what I see around me. Mm-hmm. So i that's the only thing I could work off of, right. knowing what I did not want right. for you, my life. You were already in such a small box. You were already in such a small box that had sort of been set up for you to be exactly like everybody else who was in that same box. Yeah, it was like predetermined because of your... Raising, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So, 
then <laughs> then you're then you're a teenager and you meet the men who you'd ultimately marry so how long before you how long were you dating before you married year and a half you're dating for a year and a half before you married my my father yeah we started dating in january of 77 and we were married in july of 78 yeah and you graduated high school in 77. 77, yeah. So you were just a little kid. You didn't know yet. People got married that young back then. Yeah, wasn't 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 my dad's mom like 16 when she 14. got married? She was 14 when she or got 13. Married? 13, 14 years. Wow. That's like that's like it's even hard to think about. Mhm. Like ew. This <laughs> is very ew. Um, so everything was good, though, right? Like, was it that? Like, were you guys happy before we came along? Was it? Was it? Were you uh, thinking that 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 having kids was going to be the answer? No, to... no. I just I never wanted to have kids. I was scared of having kids. Yeah. So no, we were we were like two teenagers set free. Yeah, we had jobs and we had our own little apartment and we could do whatever we wanted. So we would, you know, stay up half the night and be late for work. And then uh, your father would get laid off because of the business he was in. He would get laid off twice a year. And then if I wasn't working, we would just go hang out with friends. We had cars. We had. You know, imagine two seven to eighteen year olds with like our our money, our apartment, and our cars. Yeah, like, like minimum minimum wage was not like I mean the, the cost of living made back better then. Than minimum wage yeah, minimum wage. Cost union. of living wasn't even. Oh yeah, our part. I think our first apartment was a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Wow. Utilities. Or I think our car payment might have been like eighty five dollars a month, something wow. like that. Wow. So we were just having fun, and. um working and and then I I had had the seizure when I was 17 so I was on medicine so I wasn't I was on birth control and then once I went off of it it wasn't long before so you didn't mean to get pregnant at all it wasn't it, your father wanted a kid and mm. and I was like well we'll just see what happens you know it's funny because he told me never have kids but he, I think he wanted, you know, like a lot of men and their egos, they can only they prove want, they're men if they can they procreate. Can, they can pass their seed on. Right, and, right. And, and stupid garbage. we, um, I think we had had a car accident and we were getting some money. So we figured we we're going to buy a house, have a kid. That's what you do. You get married, you buy a car, you buy a house. That's, that's mm-hmm. what else is there to do. You yeah, know, the American dream. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, we had fun, you yeah. know. There was really not much to argue about or anything. Like, I was way before my obsessive compulsive time, so I was pretty much our place was a mess. <laughs> we didn't care because we didn't spend a lot of time there. Right. Well, like, <laughs> I'm trying to picture like those days, but then I'm like, oh, what? What? You just sit around and binge TV shows? <laughs> no, you can't do that back then. Not then. You uh, only had three six. You only had. 
four channels, five channels. It was three, six, and no, ten? No, a, a lot of times we would, I don't know, we would go to the races, you mm. know, down in South Philly, or in, uh, in the Meadows, as they call them, down like in Port Richmond area, not mm. Port Richmond, wherever it was. Um, and then we would go and hang out with Anita and John, because mm. Anita had, she was pregnant with Stephen, mm. she had Johnny. So we would spend a lot of time with Anita and John, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we'd go hang out with um, Debbie and Eddie, and wow, all those people are gone. Yeah. Um, we had some other friends we would hang out with. Like we didn't spend a lot of time at the apartment. Like we would go and see Mom, go down to Pat's. Um, just be out. Yeah. We were work, you know, when we were working, I, you know, had to go to work. He'd go to work. He worked the overnight. That was pretty scary for a 17 or 18 year old to be overnight by herself every night. Talk to me about your second pregnancy and that whole, hmm? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's see, we had, we had Justin, mm-hmm. we had the house, um, and I, once Justin was born, a lot changed, because then the going out all the time mm-hmm. was just him. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to go out. Right. Like, the only place I got to go was where he would let me, where he would take me mm-hmm. with Justin. Because back in the day, a car seat was a real pain in the butt to get in and out of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I he would go out. He would still go and do things mm-hmm. with Joey and Frank and his friends. But I got still. I got left home mm-hmm. with the baby. So and he wanted he wanted a child. He was the one that wanted a child. But but wanted but, you to do all the work. Yeah, and that was fine. I loved I loved having Justin because he was like. He loved me just because I was there. Yeah. Like that was that's the first time you experienced unconditional unconditional love. Like it wasn't unconditional. He expected me to feed him. Right, right. But he loved me like nothing. Like he the look in his eyes was like so oh my god, somebody loves me like that. And uh we were he was great. He was a good kid, he was well behaved and, and just really liked to play by himself. Mm was content in the playpen and uh and then I got pregnant with Joy and that would have been like a year and like a year and two months after Justin was about 14 months old mm-hmm. I got pregnant with Joy and uh we were living in this house on on Vista Street not that that matters but I uh at some point I started to spot and there was something, you know, I went and they were like, they did an ultrasound, which was really unusual back then because mm-hmm. that was 35 years ago. They only did them if there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. And they said that... Um, it was 36 years ago. Hmm? 36 years ago. 36 years ago. Yeah. 37 years ago, really, because it was before she was born. Right. And they said that I had something called placenta previa, which meant that I, they didn't tell me what that meant. Mm-hmm. And Tugger knew what it meant because she was a nurse. And she told everybody else what was going to happen, but they mm. didn't tell me. So they just said, take it easy, don't lift anything, 
you know, and I was, uh, at that point, probably six and a half months pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I was a smoker. I never quit smoking with mm -hmm. Justin or Joy. And that's one of the things that smoking will cause is placenta preview, which means the placenta is formed at the bottom instead of the top. Mm -hmm. So as you start to get bigger, the placenta can burst mm -hmm. and then the baby has nothing to feed off of. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, at one point I went to stay with nanny because, and okay. So like two or three weeks later, I started to spot again. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, you really need to do nothing. Like yeah. you need to just do nothing because this is going to happen. And the longer you can hold on to this baby, the better chance she has of surviving. Mm -hmm. the, the baby has a chance. They didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went to stay with Nanny. And your father took Justin down to Pat's. And when he came home... Pat is his sister. Yeah. For people listening. <laughs> yeah, Pat, Pat is Mark's sister. Mm -hmm. And when he came home, he had like a... His ear was a little swollen and red. And he's had like a blotch or two. And... Um, I put him down for a nap, and when he got up, his ear was still real swollen and mm -hmm. bright red, and I was like, maybe he just slept on it wrong. And the, there was a bunch of things going on at the time. I think I just bought him new pajamas, all this other stuff. So when we put him to bed that night, um, I had been told to stay off the steps. That's just a side note. And when we put him to bed that night in my mom's house, Justin was a good baby. He never cried. And I heard him cry. So mm. my mom ran out to get him. And she said to me, before she walked down the steps, she said, Mary Beth, don't freak out. Mm. And I, you know, anytime yeah. someone precursed that. That's not the best no. uh, preemptive. And I was like, Mom, what's going on? And she brought him down, and his eyes were swollen closed. His face was swollen. He looked like he had been beat was an allergic reaction to something? He had a horrible allergic reaction to something. So... We took him to the hospital. I'm going to say this was like a Thursday night. We took him to the hospital. They said he's definitely having an allergic reaction to something. They gave him some epinephrine and some Tylenol, not Tylenol, Benadryl. Mm -hmm. And they said, and at that point, we had opened his pajamas and he was just covered. His whole body in was hives. covered in hives. Yeah. So they treated him. He started to get better. We brought him home. And the doctor had said to me and Mark, you're going to have to watch him. Because if this starts happening inside of his body, his throat will close and he will not be able to breathe. Mm -hmm. so, so anaphylaxis. Hmm? Anaphylaxis. Right. He would. Yeah. And and so I stayed up all night mm -hmm. watching him breathe. Right. Make sure he would breathe. And then I asked Mark to stay up, and he was like, "Yeah, okay." And he fell asleep. What mm -hmm. else is new? Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, I had gone maybe two days without sleep mm -hmm. and then I started to get sick right. so I started coughing really bad coughing of course I was still smoking you smoking in the house with Justin sitting yeah. there oh yeah, yeah back what? then nanny smoked everybody smoked mm -hmm. Terry me and um I think at some point we took Justin back to the hospital and um uh, it was like the whole weekend we went back and forth from the hospital because he didn't seem to be getting better mm-hmm finally started to get better and uh your father went to work that sunday night and uh he was staying at the house he was staying back at 
our house mm-hmm. when I was staying with Nanny. And that morning, I had I had gotten sick and I was coughing horrible and caught. They would they didn't want to give me anything because you know when you're pregnant you shouldn't have anything. And I uh, woke up, didn't really think much of it. I I was again I was really sick. Um, the dog wanted to go out, so I, mm. not thinking about it, ran down the steps, mm. let the dog out, ran back up the steps, laid down, started coughing, and I started hemorrhaging. Mm. So I went in the bathroom, and I did not know that that was what was going to happen, that once I started hemorrhaging, it wouldn't stop. Mm. So I was bleeding horrendously into the toilet, mm. and I yelled for my mom, and Walt mm. came to the door, Walt's my stepfather, and he said, what's the matter, hon? And I said, I think there's something wrong. And mm. he was like, all right, all right, hold on. And I... And he said something to my mom, and my mom was like, oh, my God, Walt, um, we're going to have to call an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Because Bernadette had told Nanny once mm-hmm. it happened, mm-hmm. I was going to need to be taken out, like, right. in an ambulance. And I said, no, no, I don't want to go in an ambulance. Right. So I started calling your father. He didn't answer for the first, like, five or six times. He finally answered, and I said, you need to get here right now because yeah. I have to go to the hospital. So... We left for the... He finally came. I, like, got that bleeding to slow down enough that I could, like, put some clothes on. Mm. Went, slid my butt down the steps, <laughs> out the front door. Not running down the steps like you did no, for the dog. No, not that time. Uh-huh. Out the front door, onto the boulevard, because we lived on the boulevard at the time. Wow, wow. Walked out to the car, and then it was only, like, eight blocks to Nazareth. Uh-huh. We got to Nazareth, and... Uh, we had already called the doctor, and he said, I'll be waiting for you. Well, I went in the front door instead of the emergency room, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting in there in a registration, <laughs> and he comes walking up. He's like, what are you doing? And the I said, doctor said that? Yeah. I said, <laughs> get registered. He said, get her to the emergency room right now. <laughs> so they took me to the emergency room, uh-huh. and they checked me, and they were like, well, you know, how much did you bleed? And I said, oh, like, they're like, did you fill the toilet? I'm like, <laughs> like five times. And he was like, okay, well, apparently everything had slowed down and mm-hmm. it seemed okay. And mm-hmm. they got me all settled in to the uh, hospital room. And uh, they were checking on me every once in a while. And I said, uh, at one point, <sighs> I coughed. And the doctor, like somebody was in the room and I coughed and they were like, oh, shit, okay, now this is going to happen. And they were like, within a minute, I was in the emergency, into the operating room, and mm. they they started taking joy. Uh, she was born, like, in five minutes from mm. the time I started bleeding again. Yeah. So they took her emergency. And, of course, through all this, I was coughing. Mm-hmm. And then when you're laying down and they give you anesthesia and you're coughing, then your lungs start to fill up because you're not coughing. Mm-hmm. And then I had a 12-inch incision in my belly. Right. So I didn't want to cough. Right. And I I developed double pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, I had her on Friday. Friday night, they were like, you're not doing so good. And I said, I'm, I'm fine, you know, but I wasn't clear like I was mm-hmm. I was I felt like I was floating like I wasn't right. I wasn't I was not okay 
Right, like, you think, like, you were hallucinating a little bit? To some extent, a little bit. Like, I felt out of my body, like I was above my body looking down mm-hmm. at what was going on. And, like, mm-hmm. your father brought Julia into the room. Mm-hmm. Like, I had seen her right after she was born, and she looked like a little apple head. Like, mm-hmm. she was so tiny. Mm-hmm. And then they, a couple, like, that was... Maybe it was Thursday, Friday, it, sometime at, at like 7 o'clock at night, your father brought her into the room. And I had had, at this point, when I first came back, they had me in a room with other people. And mm-hmm. then because they knew something was wrong, and they took me and put me in a private room. And your father brought Julie in, and, and he was at the bottom of the bed, and I said, don't bring her near me. Mm-hmm. And he was like, don't you even love your own daughter? What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. And I was like... I'm sick. They don't know what's wrong with me. She's a premature baby. Right. Don't bring her near me. Right. He made so, he made it into something gross when yeah, it was not. Like the funny thing was I always like he wanted her name Julie and I wanted Sabrina. And Julie means fair haired girl. And when they bought when he bought her in, she had just had her hair her hair washed, like mm-hmm. they had just washed so her hair looked dark. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Well, she has dark hair. She can't be Julie, a fair haired girl. Mm. So then he took her away, and that night he left. Mm. And at some point in the next hour or two, they said, you're going to intensive care. Mm. And I tried calling, because he was going, of course, to the races, because mm. he was off for maternity. Right, he gets right. his, his wife was he having a baby. Party. Yeah, he gets to have his party all he right. wants. Right, he was going to the races, uh-huh. and... Um, he, I tried calling my mom, and I called, and I said, you know, they're they're transferring me, and either she never told him or he didn't care, because right. <clears throat> I think I called my mom. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I know they transferred me, and apparently during the night, Nanny called the hospital to see how I was doing, and they said, well, she's in intensive care, and she's extremely critical. Right. And they said, we don't. The next day, they said, we don't understand why you weren't here. She mm. almost died. Right. And at like 4 o'clock in the morning, maybe 5 o'clock, they brought, the priest came in and gave me last rites. Mm-hmm. And when I realized I was getting last rites, that's when my stubbornness kicked in. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. Right. Yeah, you can't leave. I, got, I, can't, I ain't leaving these two babies right. with this crazy family. <laughs> so I, that's the point. I was like, mm-mm. I'm not. Right. I'm surviving this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was 10 days before I got out of the hospital and didn't see Julie that whole time. Yeah. And nobody went to see her. And I feel like some of her issues are because she didn't have that bonding from me. And I, it was my focus. I smoked, but it wasn't because I didn't want to be with her. And your father didn't go. And then he said that she resented the baby from us killing me, and nobody went to spend time with her. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't, they bought, when I came down from the intensive care to the regular floor, they let me stop on the floor where Joy was. And she was in an incubator. She had been in an incubator because she was only four pounds. Mm-hmm. And But they said she was going to be okay. Like, if she hadn't gotten better the night she was born, they were going to send her to Children's or St. Chris's. Mm-hmm. And they said, she's a fighter, and she's she's doing okay, so we're going to keep her here. 
Mm. <laughs> so I think it was five days. I was in intensive care. And I got to stop on the floor that she was on and put my hand in and touch her and see that she was okay. Mm-hmm. And then they took me to a regular floor. And once I got to that floor, they said, you can't see your baby. And I said, what do you mean I can't see my baby? And they said, you can only see the baby if you're on the maternity floor and you are not on the maternity floor. And I said, but that's, why, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And I just cried that whole day. I was like, I fought to survive so I could see my baby and be with my baby. And now you're telling me I can't? And they're like, you can't, the only, you can see her. You have to get discharged, walk out the hospital door, walk back in, and then you can spend time with her. And I said, well, what's that going to take? I have to, so so it was another three or four days and they finally let me leave. And they, I kind of, it wasn't against medical advice, but it was, they were, they didn't think I should be leaving. And I said, I don't care. I need to see my baby. And I left, and I came back, like, walked out the door, turned around and came back in the door, and finally got to hold her. Like, mm. I had not held my baby for ten days. Wow. By the time I saw her, it was October 11th, and she was born September 30th. Yeah. Wow. I went in, and then I was there, like, as much as I could be, feeding mm. her. And within two or three days, she went from... She was born at 414, which was ironic. Mm-hmm. She went down to 47. Mm-hmm. And and she never really went up from there. Like the nurses were feeding her. She was getting fed, and but she wasn't say thriving. 414 is because that was the Nanny's date, birthday. Date of birth of your mom. Yeah. And uh so when I started going in and feeding mm-hmm. her, mm-hmm. within like two days, she went over five pounds. Mm-hmm. And that's the mark she had to be at to get out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So because they felt like, because I was there, she was thriving, she was doing well, Mm -hmm. she got out of the hospital, and then I, you know, spent every minute with her, within two months she was over seven pounds, and they were like, she's doing great. Yeah. And, you know, I stayed with Nanny for a while because I was so sick. Yeah. And, you know, I had to take care of her, I had to take care of Justin, and I had to take care of your father because he was sick and Nanny was mad at him so she wouldn't take care of him. She was mad at him for what? Him and Aunt, her and Aunt Terry were mad at your father for something. I don't... It was something stupid. You and know, instead of getting remember. past it for my sake, right. that yeah. was too much. They, no, they well, just it, couldn't. And it seems a theme. And, and, I mean, I see it in other people, not just in our family, but, like, where... You can't get over your own shit just to, just for the sake of somebody else. Like, like this, this little example of when I was in the hospital and Aunt Terry didn't visit me mm-hmm. because she was mad at you. Yeah. Like the same exact shit. Yeah. And she was mad at you for fucking up her credit score yeah, or something? Yeah, because I missed, I was late on my car payment. On like, the car payment that she co-signed on. And, and it didn't fuck up her credit score at all. Like, it's just like, you're over-exaggerating. And the things that you put value on are just ridiculous. I, I understand a credit score is important, mm-hmm. but your nephew is having what could be life-changing brain surgery. 
mm. and you can't get over that enough, I'd leave the room if you mm. wanted to see him. Right. But no, I. Uh, it is it is a theme in my family to hold on to mm. grudges and and stupid stuff, and I try really hard not to. Yeah. Well, I kind of wanted to go from that. I mean, because right after Julie was me, I was like right very, at very right soon, after yeah. that. So uh, if we could just go right into how like, like, were you not careful? What were you doing? What were you? Why were you? Were you? Were you trying to prevent getting pregnant again? After that? But when, right after, so Julie was like three or four months old, you were very, very fertile and like more than you realize. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was sorry you were next. I know, <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you why you guys weren't more careful. Like It wasn't, uh, just wasn't as easy. I couldn't be, when we first got married, I couldn't be on birth control because mm-hmm. I was on anti-seizure medicine, which is a blood thinner. So that was not that was not okay. My, my dad's got some pretty bad pullout game. <laughs> yeah, probably. No, no, no. I didn't. I um, no. For the first two years, I did not get pregnant. We were married for two years. <laughs> but I'm talking about with other ladies too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not just you. No, absolutely not. So um, yeah, it was just kind. of... I don't know. I guess we were just using the rhythm method. I I don't even know. Like. <laughs> <clears throat> you got to realize again. I I was I was still Catholic, right. and that you know birth control was looked down upon. Right, like everything was. I mean, my friend Noah did a bit about this in his stand up where he talked about. He was like, I can't even use a condom because the the seat is reserved for my wife, and I don't even know this bitch yet, and I already hate her. I'm cheating on her with a balloon, <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> it was it was it's a funny bit, and I, I I apologize for misquoting it, but it was it was a funny bit. Yeah, I you know it's so long ago. I don't remember all the details, but I know that I was like, when I found out I was pregnant with you, I cried. <laughs> I went out and got drunk, and I was like, "All right, well, that that's the last time I'll be getting drunk." But, um, well, I, like, did did you like strongly consider ending the, the I pregnancy? Did. I I had a ethical. I guess that would be ethical and a everything kind of conundrums. It was a it was a turning point in mm. my life. Like I considered abortion because I had been through so much with Julie, intensive care. Um, the incision was horrible. The pain was horrible because because it was emergency. I had a lot less um, anesthesia than they would normally give you for cutting your gut open, mm-hmm. and it wore off mm. pretty quick. So what I went through was. Perfect. Some of the toughest pain I've ever been through. I can't even imagine. And, um, so the thought of having to go through that again was enough to let me consider abortion, which abortion is for some other people that's fine, but it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it, and I d- just went through it over and over again in my head, and I had a dream. And in this dream, I was in a house that I grew up in, and each room in that house was an obstacle course. Mm. And as I would get through the obstacle course in that room, I would have another room, and it would be a different kind of obstacle course. 
And I would get to the like, end can of that. You, uh, give me an example on what the obstacle, All right, and the one what, what, like, what you know, contained in these obstacles. Right, so like, say it? like one was a chessboard type room, mm -hmm. and the dark ones were pits. Mm -hmm. The dark like the tiles, floor, like the floor is lava. Yes, and <laughs> the dark tiles were, and they would change as I was walking. Mm. So I got through that room, and then there was another, another room. I don't remember what the obstacle courses were or what but as I got through like to the last room I was like I'm fighting the devil fighting the devil and and I was like when when I there was like a mirror or something and I looked in the mirror and the devil was me mm -hmm. I was fighting my own demons that's a, and this is such a mushroom thought like that to me I was like the good one over you know, the little shoulder the, right. the demon yeah, on yeah. one shoulder the angel on the other and the 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 good me or the me that could never live with the consequences of an abortion won out well the consequences versus just the just the just the shame of it, the the guilt of it, I guess maybe right. I mean I was married, there was no real reason for it. Mm -hmm. Like it was it wasn't like the same thing as other people that have abortions that have no way of possibly taking care of this child. Right. That, you know, they the product of a rape, the you know, the reasons that seem like good reasons for an abortion. I didn't have any of those other than I was just scared because it had hurt so bad. Right. So I couldn't do it, you know. Mm. And uh so I, I, once I made that decision, I was at peace with myself. And when I went in to have you, so well now we'll get to our, your birthday, <laughs> um, I had gone to the doctor a couple months ahead of time, and they set up your dates ahead of time because we haven't enjoyed cesarean. I had to have you cesarean because it was only 14 months apart. Mm. And he was like, well, I do deliveries on Thursday, I think it is. Thursday. And so Thursday, December 1st. And I was like, No! And he was like, what do you mean, no? I said, that's my birthday. And he was like, well, the week before is too soon, and the week after is too late, so guess you're having them on your birthday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's not the way I want to remember my birthday. And he was like, well, sorry, but uh -huh. that's what's going to happen. So back then you went in the day before. Uh -huh. I went in the evening before. And that night... Um, I had sat in the bed, so probably this evening, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in the bed, and uh, eating pistachios mm -hmm. and other snacks mm -hmm. and watching uh, Tonight jo Show. Joan Rivers. And it was Joan Rivers filling in for Johnny Carson, mm -hmm. and her guest was Boy George. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely fell, with, fell in love with Boy George that night. <laughs> yeah, I've heard this story every year of my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Like, but and the then next day, then like growing growing up, like that was just like you were like fan club boy George oh culture my God, club, yeah, mm -hmm. like nut. For but like, the next day, let me finish this. Okay, when you were born, it was so different because it wasn't an emergency, right? Because I want to reassure people that the pain isn't; it's uncomfortable. But when you were born, it was nowhere near as horrendous. As when Joy was born, because Joy was emergency, there was less anesthesia. Mm -hmm. When you were born, they gave me the appropriate amount of anesthesia, and I was able to stay under the anesthesia while 
my uterus contracted. So mm-hmm. all those, no people, a lot of people don't understand what that means, but it's like, as your uterus gets contracting and it's had a huge cut in it, mm-hmm. it's really bad, really bad. Mm-hmm. But I was under the anesthesia with you. So by the time they let the anesthesia wear off, the worst of the pain was over. Mm-hmm. So it was nowhere near as bad with you. So I was like, oh, well, that was that was a piece of cake compared to dueling. Right. And then when you were nine months old, your father and I broke up, so there was no more children. Well, I mean, so we we gotta ha- we kind of have to unbox that part a little bit right. more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wanted to to maybe we'll, maybe we'll shoehorn this part in before we get there. Okay. Bringing up the boy George thing, mm-hmm. did that help you sort of identify the thoughts and feelings? Of being androgynous and sort of maybe, and maybe what? like being like us, like sexually ambiguous. Well, I, when I was in the hospital having Julie, I had had some kind of revelation that I could be gay because mm. this nurse was taking care of me and I was having these feelings that I had never had before and I didn't understand what they were. And I sat with them for a long time, like, what is this? What is this? What is this feeling? Why am I feeling like this? Mm. And I thought and obsessed about that nurse forever. I even remember her name was Olivia. And uh, you never like try to look her up or anything? No, no. I mean, I, don't. I mean, Facebook exists now. <laughs> I'll know her last name. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I, I sat with it because I didn't understand the feelings. And and I thought maybe I was just, I was just, like, because my mom was very much an alcoholic and didn't take care of me, was I just feeling taken uh, care like of? TLC. Yeah, was I just feeling cared for? And it didn't seem like that. It wasn't like it was sexual. It was very emotional, like mm-hmm. emotionally warm and fuzzy. And I was like... I don't understand what this is. Right. What are these feelings? So, when I got home from the hospital, I talked to your father and I said, I, said, I think I think I could be gay. And he was like, what? And I said, well, I had these feelings for that nurse in the hospital. And he was like, oh, alright, whatever. And we didn't talk about it too much more after that. Did he comment on the nurse's looks and... No, I don't uh, even know that he ever saw her. I mean, like when you were in intensive care, mm, you're only you're 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 intensive. <laughs> you're, yeah, like you you're intensely cared for. Well, no, no, you you're back then. People were only allowed to visit for an hour at a time, mm-hmm. so he never he probably never saw her. Right, but no, and he was no. There was the other nurse that he was flirting with. That was earlier in the right after I had Joy. Mm-hmm. That was a different nurse. Um. Mm-hmm. That was that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that story. That I, as I was laying there, in the most intense pain of my life, after just having Joy, Joy's this little tiny preemie that's four pounds, and they've taken her away, and your fa- father's standing there, and I am in. The, I'm. I just can't even describe that kind of pain that I was in. I couldn't even think straight, and he's sitting next to the bed, and this nurse comes in, and she's throwing blankets over me. Because as you're in anesthesia, you're shaking. Uh-huh. And I'm shaking, and I'm in pain. So the last thing I want to do is shake on top of what's already happening right, to me. Right, because then it stretches out So the I have now and... 
twenty some stitches in my mm-hmm. in my belly mm-hmm. and my and my uterus is pushing everything out mm-hmm. and they have to come in and push on your stomach to help the uterus push the mm-hmm. placenta out. Mm-hmm. So it is <sighs> so um he's flirting with her. Mm-hmm. And I was like I, I couldn't even think straight. So it wasn't even like I give a shit. Like you so, didn't call him out or anything. No. I, my brain was going, I can't effing believe you are flirting with this nurse while right. I am laying in this bed after just having your child, mm-hmm. your child, you're flirting with some other woman mm-hmm. over my dying body, poor right. So he says he's going to go, and I said, all right, because I didn't have the energy to deal with him and be able to survive, too. Mm-hmm. He leaves, and what like seems like an hour or so later... A different nurse comes in and she's talking to me and she's like, um, I said something about my husband. She goes, oh, I said he left. And she said, oh, he did? He said, I just saw him in the hall talking to the nurse. Mm. And I said, oh, well, I thought he left. Mm. So now he's in the hall flirting with the nurse instead of leaving. Mm. But that's beside the point. Well, that's, a, that's shadowing, like that foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing yeah. red, red flags. Well, I, you mean, I found out later that he had been cheating on me through the whole mm-hmm. marriage. Like, mm-hmm. there was just very short times that he wasn't cheating. Right. But um, when I told your father, it was no big deal. But then when um, we were having you, you know, Uncle Billy started dating Ann. And then we asked Ann to babysit. And that's how Ann the babysitter came up to be. Mm-hmm. And the morning, apparently afterward, I got told the story. The morning well, that we on, were... Hold on, So, yeah. Uncle Billy, mm-hmm. who, when you were 24, was 14? Tw- was he? 15, yeah. 15 years old? Mm-hmm. And his girlfriend, who was 14, was my babysitter. Yeah. Okay, now, now, tell me, the, this, the, continue with this story, if you can. So, um... Uncle Billy and Ann had been dating, from mm. what I understand. Mm. And, in a nutshell, Ann was Nanny's friend Ron's daughter. And they had met down the shore, because Nanny had the house down the shore, and she was rented the top of the house out to Ronnie. Okay, I didn't know any of this. And that's I how no Ann and mm. Uncle Billy met. I didn't know that at all. I just thought they went to school or, or something. Together. No, that's how they met. Ron Spangler and Nanny were in AA together. Mm-hmm. And Nanny used to rent out the house. So okay. she ran out the upper floor of the house. Right. Uncle Billy was at the shore. Ann was with the, at the shore with Ron, and mm-hmm. that's how they met. Right. Okay. And then they, I guess they continued to talk mm-hmm. afterwards because we lived in Northeast Philly and Ann lived in Ben Salem. Right. And then I think your father and I went through a really rough patch. And then, after you were born, now while I was pregnant with you, mm-hmm. your father was going to see his father, and I was very, very codependent at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I'd already been through what I had been through with Julie in that pregnancy, so he was going to go see his father in Delaware for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I said, if you go, this is over, you know, we're done. Mm. Don't ever come back, blah, blah, blah. So he went away. He went. He said, I haven't seen my father in a year, a couple years, and I want to see my father. Mm-hmm. So he went, which is legitimate. Like yeah, now, I mean, in why, retrospect, did you, why did you give him that ultimatum? Because I didn't want him to leave. But, I mean, 
like, did you think that was going to make him not go? Like, I mean, I had no idea. I knew I was desperate and I was going to pull out all the stops and making him not go see his father. Mm -hmm. So he went and I had the weekend to think about what would my life be like without him. You know, I have two babies. I got another one on the way. We have a pretty good life. You know, mm-hmm. it's not horrible. We, we we don't get along all the time, but we get along a lot. We have a lot of material things. Together. We we have fun together. We, yeah. we, we're we both night people. That's really hard to find two like, night people. The thing is, like, I, I always, I always sort of struggled with this. And I, I mean, I still, and I, it's probably any kids whose parents break up. You always think about, like, oh, man, my parents really love each other. And I know, like, when you talk about the good times, you loved him. And whenever he talks about you, which I don't talk to him very much, but, you know, once a year, maybe, mm-hmm. he loves you. Like, ridiculously. And it's like, you guys were, like, super, like, super close. But, like... It's like, you, that was the first person you loved. Like, you yeah. didn't know any other thing. And you just became a close friend with this person. It yeah. We, more, it seemed we were, more like it was more beneficial as a friendship. Yeah, we were we were friends. We liked each other's company. We liked hanging out. Mm. He had been raised, in my opinion, to disrespect women. Mm. And that his father's motto... Or mantra in life was get it, get all the sex you can get, no mm-hmm. matter what. Yeah, yeah. So he lived by that to yeah, some he extent. Still, he still thinks that way. He still. He still thinks. He'll you still know, say stuff like that. Like you know, and, and if if he could have set that aside, we could have had a really good relationship because I was willing to work and change my shortcomings. We won't get into all that, but there mm. was shortcomings right. that I recognized mm. that weekend. Mm. That weekend. I realized that in the seven years that we were married, I never trusted him. And I had every right to not trust him. But that was beside the point. I had to put it down. If I wanted this relationship to work, I had to trust that he was not going to leave me because he had not left me so far. And I gave him every reason in the world to leave me, and I pushed him to leave me Mm. because of my... My actions, my behaviors. Do you think that that's like there's like some postpartum there too, like that might have been probably to some extent, but it was it was mainly about the sex. Mm -hmm. So he had not left me, and through that weekend, he had had some time to think, Mm -hmm. and he got to know what it would be like to not be around his kids and his wife, Mm -hmm. and I felt what it would be not to have him in my life. So Mm -hmm. when he got home, we had a very long talk, Mm -hmm. and this would have been. October, maybe September, October of that year, mm-hmm, right of before I was eighty three, before you were born, right. and from that weekend forward was the best months of our marriage. Mm-hmm. We got along. He was more attentive. He carried a picture of me and you guys with him all the time. He showed it to everybody. And it was. It was really good. The whole gay thing never came up again because I was married. Mm -hmm. I made a vow. 
and that I was, was you said that was a god. Him. That was a vow to God as well. Like that part of your Catholicism was also right. That was something to that you didn't pursue, mm-hmm. whether it was. So that was you know like after you were born, everything was good. Christmas was good. Um, January, February, your father was laid off, of course, because he always got laid off like in December. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started working for that JF Motors, and that's when we met Peggy, Peggy O'Brien. And mm-hmm. uh, Peggy <clears throat> came around, and she would tell me, she was like, he loves you so much. Mm-hmm. He's like, he shows that picture of you and the kids to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we were th- we were truly the happiest we'd ever been mm-hmm. in that time frame. And then, and then I said to him, we went out one time for a ride, and I said, I have to get out of the house. Mm. I am stuck with three babies, mm. and I have to get out once in a while. I said, you get out to go to work. You get out to hang with your friends. I only go out to go see my mom. That's it. Mm-hmm. Not that that's not enough, but I want to go out on dates with you. Like, I want you and I to be able to go out. We had fun together, and we mm-hmm. don't ever get to go out. So that's when we bought Anne into the picture. Mm-hmm. And we went out a couple times, and Ann babysat. And then the whole summer, which I didn't realize something was already going on, but Ann spent most of the summer with us babysitting, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And she was telling her mom she was staying with this friend or that friend, but she was staying with us most of the time. Mm -hmm. But on the day you were baptized, which was sometime, I think it was March 8th, Mm -hmm. you know, the... Their anniversary is the 8th of the mm. month. Mm. That was the first time your father came home from work and had spent the night because it was going to be your baptism and we needed help getting ready in the morning. Mm-hmm. But she was there most nights anyway. Not then, because she was in school. Okay. She'd be there on the weekends. Well, she was what? Well, she was all in like 8th grade at that point? Maybe a freshman. Because <laughs> her birthday was in March. I th- yeah, her birthday's in March, so she was 13, I think. Mm-hmm. She was going to be 14, mm-hmm. and I so, I was sleeping in my room. Mm-hmm. He came in from work. She was sleeping on the couch, and she had no underwear on, and that was the first time they had sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this that kind of speeds it back right to me going, like, when his mom got married, she was 13 years old. And me saying, ew, to that, and not even thinking about how... He like, was a married man with three children. And he was 25? Tw- no, 20, 20, 23, 24. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, here he is, you know, doing this with her. But, right. you know, everybody was like, well, she was only 13. That was right. No, she was laying there waiting for him mm. with no underwear on. She knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah, yeah she, I mean. He, the, he was not he, her he was first, not her first by yeah. any means, no. Right. And, you know, then it was, I took her under my wing thinking that she, cause she was telling me she was being abused by her alcoholic mother. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took her under my wing as like this, uh, person that she could talk to. Right. Instead, they're that, messing around and I'm being naive. Right. And, uh, at some point through the, <clears throat> through the summer, uh, Justin had come into the bathroom when I was getting out of the shower. And I said, what's what's Daddy and Ann doing? And he said, they're kissing. And I was like, 
I'm sorry, what? And when I confronted him, he was like, oh, Anne's upset about something. I was just giving her a hug. Mm -hmm. And then it just, you know, just escalated until we broke up in Mm -hmm. September. Right. When she had to go back home because school started. Mm -hmm. And it just, it just was just ugly, ugly, ugly. We broke up Labor Day weekend. So it's funny because like when you brought when you brought up the going to his dad's in Delaware to visit his dad, he got that time to think about what it was like to not see his kids. And it's funny because you mention it that way. And I spent so much of my childhood wondering if he ever thought what it was like to not know us. And like I would always wonder if like he ever thought about us. I always wondered. If he just didn't give a shit at all, that that messed with me so much as a kid, because I ne- I always felt like he was just like oh well forget him that like that that chapter's done whatever. Well, I think it. And then and then him and Anne had their own kids, so it's like we kind of got replaced. Oh, Anne replaced you, yes, because mm-hmm. I do believe that he thought about you mm-hmm. a lot, and she wanted to make sure that she. She gave him a replacement so that he would not come back to me because there were so many times he would come back to me. Mm. And so you guys. How you many know? times did you guys get back together? Well, I'm trying to think. I had department in Alney. Because I don't remember any of this. No, because a lot of it, I've sheltered you from you. From, I sheltered you guys from it. He came back. I was living in Alney. He said he wanted to get back together, but we need it. I said, but we need to move away from here because mm. I can't trust Anne. Mm. So we were, I gave my notice at that apartment mm. and he had been working apparently. So this was soon after we broke up and I got his income tax filled mm. out mm. and we were going to take that money and move back to, move to North Carolina mm. to get away from Anne. Mm. And that all wow. fell through. Wow. Anne North got him. Carolina? Yeah. Wow. I never heard because that. Because he had family members. No, I there. know that. But I mean, like I, I didn't, mean that was short lived. I didn't. I mean, I never. I never heard North Carolina until Julian Justin moved there in like eight, nine years ago. Because that's where his family was, North Carolina. I knew his father lived there. We could go down and right. you know get started with his father. I mean, Nanny was upset. Just ignore him. <laughs> Nanny was upset because we were going to move, but. It, it that lasted about a week, and then Ian got her hooks back in him, and I didn't see him again. Right. Yeah. And but I took his income tax because <laughs> I needed it to move. Then right. yeah. I had to move. I had already right. given my notice. Right. So I moved, mm-hmm. and then I didn't see him again for a while. Mm-hmm. And then um, it was probably it could have been a year or two. Uh, I can't remember the timing when Julie got really sick mm. and my mom came over. I think I asked my mom to come over because I needed to take Julie to the hospital. She was running like 104 mm-hmm. fever and I was, she kept dipping on me. Like I mm. was really scared. I was going to lose her. Mm. And this was like summer. It was beginning of summer, I think. And uh, my mom came over and she said, I can't. I can't let you take that baby to the hospital by yourself. Mm. She's like, but I want her to stay there with you and Justin. Right. And she was like, I'm calling Mark. And I said, no, I don't want him to know where I live. I don't want, 
I don't want him involved, mm. but she did anyway. She said, Mark's got to be here. Mm. This, look at this baby. Like, Julie was so sick. It was right. horrible. Mm. So he came over. Can you, can he, you say it in my mom's voice? What? Can I say it? Say, wait, she said, look at this baby. Say look, look at this baby. She's so sick. <laughs> she needs her daddy. <laughs> Mayor Beth, you need to call Mark. <laughs> but, so. And, uh, so we took her to the hospital, and they said that she could possibly have her eye syndrome. And what's that? Which is, it's a deadly, it's a deadly condition that if... Baby, Can you if say, it, say it again? Rye syndrome. Rye. Rye, yes. They... It was from giving kids aspirin mm -hmm. after they had the flu or something. Mm -hmm. Somehow this thing would happen to children. Mm -hmm. And they said, had she been sick in the past couple of weeks? And I said, I think she had like a cold or something. And they said, well, what did you treat it with? And I said, I don't know, Tylenol? I don't know. They were like, is it possible you gave her aspirin? I was like, I don't think so, but maybe. And they were like, well, we can't rule out Rye syndrome because she was so, she kept fading in and out. Like she wasn't having seizures. She was just... Passing out from the fever, and they um, they put her they they admitted her and she was in there for five days, mm. and your father would show up with Anne in the car, mm. and visit for an hour or two, or mm. if that, and leave, and uh, took Joey back to the apartment. What apartment was that? And then we got together, back together again, mm -hmm. and that's when we got the other apartment by him and I. Was that the one with the green carpets? Yeah. And all I remember is seeing, all I remember is moving into an apartment that had green carpets. Yeah. I remember nothing else. I remember being like, this place has green carpets, and that was like, just a, a snapshot of a day that we were moving into an apartment with green carpets. Yeah. That's it. And I think at that point, Julie was four. So you would be three. Justin was six. Mm -hmm. We we were there about um, two months maybe, and back he went to Ann. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's when he when he broke into the apartment. He, not even break into the apartment. He caught me. I would tell him he couldn't come to see you guys because I was not going to be home, and then I would hide the days he was off work. Mm -hmm. And he tricked me and came one day that he wasn't off work, mm -hmm. and I let him in, and he came after me to beat me. Mm -hmm. And I'm really good at avoiding people. So I was mm -hmm. able to get out, but it was September, and I had no shoes on, and mm -hmm. I'm running down the street. He comes running after me, and I said, Get back in the house with those kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, Don't you leave those babies by themselves. And I just kept running. Mm -hmm. And I went to a phone booth and called Stan, and that's when Stan came, and that's, I think you remember a little bit yeah, of that. Yeah, and Tucker's husband, Stan. Um, and he kicked the door in when Mark wouldn't open the door. He was standing there egging him on. Like, I ain't opening the door. And Stan just stepped back and kicked the door in, and your father grabbed his jacket and ran out the back door. There was a lot of running it from that apartment that yeah. night. Wow. And then I went to court that next week and got the protection from abuse from him mm -hmm. and uh, moved in to Nanny's house mm -hmm. on Conley Road. Yeah. And we were there for until we moved to Knight's Road. Yeah, I mean... And it was. And that's when I start. I think I started making memories then. Like so, I was maybe five when we moved to Knights Road, right? I think so. We so moved to Knights Road in eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty seven. We moved in there in okay. eighty seven. Yeah, that might be when I have some memories. Like I like I also have some some memories of you 
brought us. You took us to California. I didn't know that it was, was for, after '87. I don't. I didn't know it was. So I was only. I was three. You were three when we went to California. I was three when we went to California. So mm-hmm. we ha- hadn't moved to Knights Road yet. No, we were on Conley Road. Okay. So I didn't know it was for as long as it was until you just told me that recently, that it was a month that we were there? Yeah, it was like 20, 28 days or something. Mm. It was from July 7th to July 28th, so it was no, three weeks, it was 21 was days. When I, was that the first time I ever met Uncle Jimmy, was that trip? Or did I know him? Yeah, because he, he moved when I was pregnant with you. He mm. moved back to California. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so that's when you first met him. Mm-hmm. And you were three, yeah. Brianna was two, I guess. Like one and a half. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and so we... Was it like, was him, was us going there? Was that like the catalyst that make him want to leave, like move back home? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like through that year, between, in in the year, not just 87, but in that, in the year before that, Uncle Billy had gone out, Aunt Terry had gone out, and I was the last one to go out to California. Mm -hmm. So he knew he wasn't going to get anybody to visit. No one was coming out to visit him. Mm -hmm. And he um, had come home for Christmas, like the year before, Mm -hmm. with Brianna, but he came home like in mid-January instead of Christmas, because Christmas is too expensive. So he knew what it was like to be like with the family. And then um, we left there the end of July, and he called Nanny probably the first week in August and said, I'm coming home. Mm-hmm. And he was home by the first week in September. Yeah. He sold everything, put what he didn't want to sell in a U-Haul. Was that house that he lived in nice? I remember there being yeah, a hot tub it was in a the duplex. backyard. It wasn't in the backyard. It was a community oh, it was hot tub a, oh, it was a and a pool, community okay. tool, pool and a uh, hot okay. tub. So like, like I'm saying, this is a fuzzy three-year-old kid's memory. So. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a. Uh, and that was the first time I'd ever seen a, a townhouse, a hot like, tub, or a yeah, like it was the second story. The underneath was the garage, mm-hmm. so it was kind of like a big apartment, kind of like this. Like right. it had two bedrooms that I can remember. Mm-hmm. Nice size living room well, had a nice like, deck. He was, he was, sort of a manly guy. Oh yeah, like, fishing, I, hunting, like, right? Yeah. And I knew that like that felt like that was going to be what my future was then. Mm-hmm. Like that he took Justin out fishing, but I was still too young. Yeah. But sooner or later, that was going to be what was me. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we ever got to it. But then he like wound up like teaching me how to wash my hands when I got a little bit older. Right. He like taught me man things right but like i i mean uh, show me what sensitivity was right masculinity and sensitivity at the same time i learned that at a young age from him and then i never saw it again in another man until mm. until i got old enough to be that and that was what my father was trying to beat out of him mm-hmm. was that sensitivity right and he he never did fortunately he didn't right like he was uncle jimmy like he effed everything that moved, and I think that was him trying to make up, mm. like, to be a man, you mm. know? Mm. But he really he really was a good man who was very uh, scarred, damaged. Yeah. Just damaged. We were all damaged. Yeah. That's what somebody doesn't understand, how damaged we all are. Mm-hmm. And in turn, continues to hurt me. 
mm. because I feel like I've recovered more from the damage than any of my siblings. Yeah. Through help, through getting help. Yeah. And I can only... I can only apologize for what I couldn't do because of what damage was done to me. Yeah. But I didn't sit back and say, fuck it, I'm damaged, deal with it. Right, right. I've done the work, apologized for what I couldn't accomplish or what what I what I couldn't do. Like you you were never twirling a mustache going, Oh, this'll this'll really get me, you know, get me points in the evil club. Right? It's there's nothing you ever did out of malicious intent. And I Maybe a few things, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but, but yeah, you took you took somebody's income tax who fucked you over. Sure, yeah. I needed it to move. Right, like when it comes to when it comes to like survival, when it comes to that stuff, yeah, like you got to do what you got to do to survive when it comes to make or break because you've taught us that, like, when. When sh- when shit ne- when sleeves need to be rolled up, sleeves need to be rolled up, and uh, that that's why like I I think that's where I get a lot of the like where I don't I don't just say I'm gonna do a thing, I do the thing and then I then I continue to do you know what I'm saying like I didn't I could have just said and this is like some of my closest friends will give me compliments for this where like I never just said I'm gonna be a stand up comedian. I never said I'm going to be a podcaster. I just started doing those things, right. where a lot of people would get in their own way, and I knew sleeves need to be rolled up, and I need to do this work. And I, like, and if you I, watched I, me, you saw me doing the work. And I just talked about it on Wrestle Rock tonight about how no one in my family watched wrestling. Not a person ever no, watched it with me. My grandmother, which you didn't no, know. I didn't know her. No, no, I didn't know her. My grandmother would will go wrestling. He likes to watch wrestling, and I watched maybe an episode of SmackDown with her once or twice. Yeah. Um, but well, my, my grandmother, my nanny. Yeah, I don't. I never wrestling. Met, right. Yeah, that's my nanny would tell me that all the time. I didn't know. I didn't. No, she was gone long right. before you, but. But. Yeah, uh, like when it came to that that part of it, and then me saying that that was a thing I wanted to do, and you being like, "Yes, you are gonna do it." That's what and, you want. That's what we're doing. And and made it so. Like, what? Who else has that in their world? And like the, I was just I was just talking about this yesterday with Eddie, where where I said like, "Oh, my mom knew I had to learn that the hard way." She 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 recognized she recognized that there was going to be a hard lesson for me to learn, but I needed to learn it. With a lot of things, not just in the last four months, but I'm saying with a lot of things where you're just like, all right, this is going to be a this is going to be a teachable moment for you, and and never during any of that tough love that I ever think like, oh you you son of a bitch, you really tried to fuck me over on that one. Because you weren't, you you knew what the risks were, you you mapped it out. You had a plan, but you I needed to learn. the The cushion was there for you to fall on, but I wasn't going to stop you from falling. Right. 
So, I mean, but with all these, with all these things, and I, and I say this all the time, and I, I'm sure I've said it to you before, um, what's four months in 35 years? You know what I mean? Like, what's, what's, what's a two-year relationship in, in this many years? Like, if, if I think about my life and I think about when I started wrestling, right? So, at 14. So, that's about 20 years ago. A lot of stuff has happened in that time that most of it I can't remember. A, a good amount of it I can't remember. But I know that's... That... I turned around and that time went by. Like, what's to say that if I have another, like, four, six month, one year relationship with a person and it doesn't go the right way and they just took up that time but didn't yeah. cost me a whole lot else. Um, I still get to be alive and experience this. Mm -hmm. And I want to... I, I want to through you, pass on my, <coughs> my, my love for the world, you know, and try to, try to give hope to some people and give lessons that I, maybe, maybe, maybe I, you know, maybe my voice means something to somebody someday. And I, I just want to keep building that. And I, I, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for you. It it took for you to eat shit for thirty some years. It took for you to eat shit to pass this on, and this is, and I've been also eating some shit. But I can't even compare my eating shit to any of the eating shit that you've done. So when I tell you I'm grateful, I'm not just telling you. I'm feeling gratitude, and I love you more than anyone in the world. It's not. That makes it worth eating the shit. Because all I ever, ever wanted was for someone to say she was a great mom. That's all that fucking matters to me. Like, I didn't have the wrestling dream or the movie star dream or, or any kind of dream. Once I had my first child, all I ever wanted in my life was for somebody to say she was a good mom. She cared about her children. First and foremost. That's that's my greatest achievement. I always used to say, that's all I want on my tombstone. She was a good mom. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think... Spent, I don't think we can ever... I've spent 38 years now mm -hmm. just trying to achieve that. I think that was a good mom isn't the case. Even after you're gone, you are a good mom. And that those lessons are staying with me forever. Like, more, more, more sacrifice than, than anyone can give to anything. Than I've ever witnessed from anybody giving a sacrifice to anything. Like, you ever see that movie 128 Days? Where James Franco was had his arm stuck in that. No, I never saw that, but I know I've heard of it. Yeah. And he sawed his arm off, 
That's like, that's, that's you. You saw your arm off on a daily basis to make sure that we know that you love us. And you don't just say that, you, you show that. And when you tell us that actions speak louder than words, we, we use that. That applies for us. I mean, as I'm speaking for Jess and Justin and myself. I don't know about, I don't know about my, my other sister. I mean, I hope, I, I hope the best for her. I always, I always do. And I, I, I know that there's going to be a day where there's no, you can't, you can't, you can't get back these days. No. You can't get back this time. And I, I assume that she sits there and, and doesn't think about it, but I think about it all the time. Like, this is time lost. Mm-hmm. Time's lost with Willow. Time lost with her and I. With all of us. With us spending time together. Like, this is... We still get to spend time together, the four of us. Mm-hmm. But it's always been the five of us. Yeah. And... Nothing can compare. And, you know, I've done so much soul searching through the years. And and this year, this year and a half that she's been gone, and I have come to the conclusion that what I'm accused of is not not true. Mm-hmm. I've done enough research. I've done days and weeks and months worth of research to know that what she accuses me of is not true. Right. Um, so I'm, I've come to peace with that. Yeah. Don't. Don't care about it anymore. Don't mm. not gonna lose sleep over that anymore. Mm. But I I feel sad for her because she's being manipulated. She and know I who understand she is. that she has mm. her issues, mm. but she's being manipulated. Mm. Uh, and I, I think and, and it's a new year, and I and I want to be free from that. And move on. Right. Um, I, I I feel like sometimes these conversations that I have on uh, on the record is is a it's, a it's a time capsule in here and now and who I am and where I'm coming from and today being my thirty fifth birthday. Um, I I. I I've had the conversations where I say to I I have the conversations where my friends who come on who have kids say what message so my friends who've been in here having conversations with me who have children say you know maybe maybe uh, 15 20 years after you know, they discover these audio files and they find out and they try to find out what kind of person their parent was in this time and age. So let's say my kids find this recording mm-hmm. and by the time they hear it, I'm not this person anymore or I'm not this, I'm not on this planet anymore or you're not on this planet anymore. What would be the thing that you would want them to know most about you? And this can be like your message to 
your grandkids uh, in the future when they finally hear this? Is that a question? Yeah, tell me. I just tell, felt like that tell, was tell them everything that we just discussed right. is well is, is it's, it's, yeah. There is no one thing. Like mm-hmm. it's just a matter of trying really hard to take care of yourself without being self-centered. Mm-hmm. Like be selfless and selfish at the same time is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. But you can't not take care of yourself. And expect to be able to take care of other people. Mm. You have to take care of yourself first. And that's what's taken me a long time. And, and I still backslide all the time. Because I want to mm. take care of you guys. And then I get resentful because I'm not taking care of myself. Mm. So you have to take care of yourself. Because as I've always said, like the analogy that I learned in counseling was everybody needs help. Mm. You know, and... You, what is, there's an analogy that is about, okay, uh, a lifeguard, I couldn't remember it, a lifeguard, uh, you're drowning, and the lifeguard goes out to save you, Mm. if you, you can pull him down with you, with, if he doesn't take care of, if he's not strong enough to help you, Mm. and he has to make sure he's strong enough first, Mm. you're both drowning. Right. So you have to make sure you are strong enough to handle what crisis could happen before you can go and help somebody else yeah and i think that like the one of the cliches is like uh stay ready so you won't have to get ready but sometimes that feels like a little paranoid oh no for sure for sure it's very like doomsday prepper yeah yeah and that's yeah i mean it's it's the it's the context I guess, but uh, you I guess sort of being aware of your own shit so that you can get out of your own way sometimes. Um, like I, I know I still have issues. Mm-hmm. I absolutely know it. I recognize them, but I can't always change it. It's just it really is nature. Um, I can fix it in retrospect, but sometimes as I'm going through it, it's just happening. It's, there's dysfunction happening in my head and in my thoughts and in my actions. And I, I feel like a lot of times I'm saying your words, even if they're not words you've said, but like when I'm saying certain things, when I go, yeah, but that's a lot of learned behavior and a lot, a lot of this programming that's within you. That that's so subconscious. That's cognitive dissonance. You know what I mean? Like you, it's just so built into your marrow, and you don't know how to get in front of it. That, Absolutely. That's something that takes some like deep, hard roads for you to. You have to walk down the hard road to find how to improve upon yourself without just being wrapped up in yourself. Right. Um, so, I know you and I have talked about it before, and I, 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 I want you to sort of give me a little bit of thought process. Like, okay, 
So normally I, I would ask this question and I just usually come right out and I say like, I know you've lost people in your life. You've, lo- you've had some losses, deaths in your family and in your, in your, in your friends. I mean, you just said like all, all those people in your story, none of them are here anymore. No. Um, where, what do you think happened to those people? What do you, do you think they just like don't exist anymore? Physically, yeah, but I I believe like with Teresa and John Edward and all that, I believe that our energy continues and and just exists. I don't understand it because it is beyond what our brain can comprehend. Mm-hmm. But I I feel that they're they're around us. I think that energy is eternal and it never goes away. I don't understand how it how it stays. Mm-hmm. Like it's not in that body of a person Mm -hmm. but it's their energy and they are around you i mean even like cells and there's the the energy like the cells and the energy that's in like if they take a microscope and they're looking at something that's so small and minute that your brain and your naked eye can't compute that thing without the mega mega magnification Mm -hmm. it's like could that be the energy that's in the air that is that is the spirit you know what i mean that that's maybe that's maybe that's just like romanticizing what we've seen on tv and movies and stuff but i mean like that probably was a good basis for some of the thought processes that we we all share as a people yes yeah, somewhere even before this generation, like all the way back to Jesus and before Jesus, they talked about eternal life. Mm-hmm. So before they even comprehended what eternal life was, they said it existed. Mm-hmm. So this is before we've had Bibles and books and science and all this stuff. They've always said it's eternal. It's mm-hmm. ongoing. Mm-hmm. So before we had mm-hmm. even the brain power to cook mm-hmm. or create fire, there was always this known that everything was eternal. Right. So that would make no sense that everything just dies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not how nature is. It's all, it's all a circle. Huh? It's all the circle of life. Right. You know? It's all, I mean. Wait, I mean, think about, when I think about my eggs, okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean my ones in the refrigerator. My one. eggs. My mother was born with my eggs. Her mother was born with my eggs. Every woman is born with another. Go back to Eve, you know? Uh, like, uh, <laughs> I am born yeah. with eggs in my body already. Yeah. And then those eggs are going to become people. And then Jess will have those eggs. That's eternal. That's like ongoing. Mm-hmm. Jess's child's eggs, child, child, child will have my egg will be a part of my egg. Yeah. So how do we how do you say we're we're not eternal and 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 we all come from the egg, you know? Like yeah. it's just it's hard it's beyond what our brains can comprehend. It's so high on the spiritual chain that even the most spiritual of us can't really comprehend it because it's mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, it's it's like well, I, I think uh, Pete Holmes, 
Pete Holmes says the thing where he talks about it's like we're like dogs trying to figure out the internet. Do what? We're figure like dogs, fi- dogs trying to figure out what <laughs> yeah, the internet yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I totally believe that. Yeah. It's like the the stars and like look look up like I I know like I think it was an, an old Joe Rogan bit where he did a thing where he said uh, like people flock from all over the place to come see the Grand Canyon like look at this hole. This yeah. humongous hole, wow, amazing. And he's like, dude, look up. That goes on forever. Yeah. This sky, well, you don't know what that is. We're just floating balls in space. Like, all of you look up in It was like space. the first time I got glasses. Mm-hmm. And I, I was out on my balcony. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God. And Gail came running out. She's like, what? What? I was like, look. And she's looking up and she's like, what? I'm like, look at the stars! And she's like, and? And I said, what do you mean, and? Look how beautiful they are! And she was like, I I see them all the time. And I'm like, well, this is the first time I've seen them in years because they're just like little specks in the sky. But when you're putting your glasses on, you're seeing all the the change, the color changes and the way that they they dance. And And she was like, she thought I had lost my mind. She's like, Mary, are you on mushrooms right now? <laughs> She's like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I just haven't seen those stars. And she's like, I was like, I, I just got glasses for the first time. Wow, like, yeah. And she was like, oh, okay. It's like, wow. But, you know, the, the, the realization and, you know, there's so much. I just want this to be the start of a new year where I have a different perspective and just a more upbeat, like so much is changing right now that I'm hoping will be more peaceful. Do you think about being the age that is the year you were born? What? Do you ever think about like now being the age that is the year that you were born? Yeah, I definitely said that. So I'm 59. I was born in 59. So right. Right. I'm hoping that's like a really awesome thing. Like <laughs> yeah, that means that's the year of your life, you right. know. Yeah, it's it's it feels like there's some some magical connection there that this is going to be your year. I'm 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 uh, trying to stay on that mindset. Yeah. You know, and hope for the best and and just go in that direction and <clears throat> well, well part part of me wanting to do this um and even like whenever i have like certain people on and i say like like going back to that time capsule part of it and going oh, i might not ever have another opportunity to have a conversation with you that's on the record like this and i started it from when you saved those voicemails. When you saved those voicemails From, from Maria. And Maria. Yeah. yeah. And you were like, you know, and you said, you know how that when people die and you forget what their voice sounds like? And I was like, oh man, I don't want that. I don't want yeah. you to forget my voice when I'm dead. I don't want you to forget uh, my messages. I don't want you to forget, like, the type of person that I am. So then I said, I'm going to have these conversations with people who means something to me. And I'm going to let them know things that will be on the record 
so that if I don't make it and you're going back and listening, you'll hear me say this to you, Mm -hmm. that everything I am, the, the, every single piece of me is better off having had you as both my parents. Um, the, every little thing, every interaction I've had with anyone, it all comes back to the lessons I've learned through sitting under your learning tree. And I, I'm so proud of who I am, and I'm so proud of who you are, and I want to make you proud of me. I'm always proud of compassion and, um, Empathy. Mm. Like, that's all I've ever wanted is that my kids, I don't care what your career is, I want to know that you're empathetic and worldly in a way that you see the good in the world Mm. and just be a better person. Just, Just be gentle and kind and caring even when the world kicks the living shit out of you. Mm-hmm. Because you can be bitter and mean. You have really good examples of all of that right here in your extended family. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be a whiner. You can be poor me. You can be fuck the world. Mm-hmm. And you see that none of that brings you happiness. Yeah, the... the being a victim only gives you more stuff to talk about. Like, it really feels like being a victim... No one no one stays a victim silently. Like, people only are victims so they can talk about how much they're a victim. And that... Oh, that's sickening. And it's like, don't you ever want to be something more? Right, like, you know, when you go to survivor's meetings... Um, not that I need to be specific, but... You, in those meetings, you learn to, if you've learned, if you've walked the path. Oh, I'm, I'm you, in no way stop am, I, being am, I, a, am I shitting on any victims? Because victims, no, 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 being a not, victim that's is not what a I'm whole saying. other You, in those, in mm-hmm. your growth, mm-hmm. you change from being a victim mm-hmm. to being a survivor. Mm-hmm. And you stop calling yourself a victim. Mm-hmm. And you begin to call yourself a survivor. Mm-hmm. And you know that you're working the program, if you want to call it that, or you're walking the path mm-hmm. when you've changed your terminology yeah, right, yeah. from victim to survivor. There's strength in words. Hmm? There's a lot of strength in words. And, um, I, like I, I could say, well, I'm a blah, blah, blah victim. No, I'm a blah, blah, blah survivor. Right. You know, uh, the victims usually die. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they die a slow death or they die they're dead even though they're walking the earth right. because they've never forgiven gotten past it moved around it well that I think I you I, and, I, and I might overuse this but um, I think people who allow themselves to be victimized continue to remain spectators in their lives and do not become deliberate creators. Uh, we'll become creators in uh, watching things happen, 
and expecting one thing and getting the thing that they expected. And whether, you know, it's never good, but it's just, it's just a, like, I can remember, you remember when, in, in the Knights Roadhouse that we lived in, you put, you put, um, you, you put world maps on the, the walls, like back where the toy box was, and that toy box had like a desk part that you Mm -hmm. could sit at. Mm Mm-hmm. We used to like play school. Yeah. And I would sit there by myself and stare up at these maps. And I just started remembering this as an adult. Stare up at these maps and I'd be like, why me? Why am I seeing what I see through my eyes? This is like a TV show. Who's watching this TV show that's coming out of my eyes? Mm. That, that messed with me a little bit when I was a kid. Yeah. And, I, and then I start, and then now as I'm, I'm packing that, I'm like thinking about casting the, the TV show or the movie that is my life hmm. and the circles that I keep and like, who am I affecting with my, my words and my actions? Because I like, it came and I, I think I told you this today, where um, I, when I when I used to come to the ring, I used to do like the, I used to do the thing that like the, the hand motion that like Messiah used to right. do in CZW back in the day, mm-hmm. because I like looked up to the Messiah and the the high five right. and all that stuff, and that was like who I was fans of, and I wanted to have something like they had, so I, ble- I just pretty much ripped it off. Um, and then, like when I was when I was like then getting my heavyweight title reign in DCW, and I was talking about that to Zach, and Zach was like, the Booker of of DCW. He was like, yeah, but you're that to these guys now. Right. You're that to these guys now. So like I stopped doing that altogether. Like I don't, I don't rip anybody off. You know what I mean? It's all. My stuff, because I know that that's going to make an impression on someone. Mm-hmm. And maybe somebody else will do that later on and have it be as a tribute to me, but right. maybe not. I mean, but I'll know I was genuine the whole time. You know, a funny story was yesterday when we were doing Amazon, and uh, this lady, it was a long line, and this lady walked, she was walking by, a lady that worked for Amazon, and she said, <clears throat> her laptop was dying and it was stupid like stupid things dying I was like you need to get a cord a a car charger so you can come and sit in the car with us and let it charge and she was like yeah yeah so later she went in the warehouse she came back out and she was walking up she was smiling real big and she was like create create what and I was like huh like I totally forgot we had that create license plate Yeah, yeah yeah and she was like I was like looking at her I was like Huh? And she's like, create, create what? And she pointed to the front of the license plate. And then Je- Jess and I both in unison said, create all good things. Mm-hmm. And she was like, she smiled real big. She goes, 
I'm a crafter. I thought you were creating stuff. <laughs> I said, no, we create good things in our life. And she was like, oh, okay. Well, well, I mean, that came from you. Like, the all that Napoleon Hill stuff. Like, yeah, all, the, uh, all that, from, from Gail. Yeah, when you used to play the tapes for us as in the car. And, like, I was like, why is it a lady named Abraham? And I, I know. Trying, that and still I, confuses me, but, you the, know. The channeling and all that. I didn't quite understand that as a kid. Um and I mean, I don't really all the way understand it now. I mean, no, I don't. I don't comprehend it fully. But it's like fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. So if you just the messages are good. The messages and are and very good. and to me, like the Abraham Hicks tapes were like somebody smushed it all into a book, and and it was the the uh, what am I thinking? Like a bridged version. No, the book. What, uh, n- the secret. Uh, yeah. Okay. Basically, it was like all those tapes squished into a book that made more sense in a like a Reader's Digest version, like an unabridged, mm-hmm. shorter version that was easier to digest, listen to and comprehend, right? Yeah, and really get it in your in your idea that everything you're thinking about is what you're attracting to yourself. Mm-hmm. So every time I catch myself thinking of negative negative stuff and stuff like that, like just kind of push that out of the way and try to replace it with a excuse me, a more positive thought. Well, yeah, like, we, the main thing that was a pull away from being young and those tapes being on in the car, you would say, just change your words. Just change your words. Because the way those, the, the, the energy in those words, when you say, I don't want this, I don't want that, those That's are, what draws those are the you. things. Instead, replace that with the things right. that you would want. And that, I mean, I know like that became a craze as I as I grew up. But I had already knew all that. St- I've yeah, already yeah, known we, all that stuff. Yeah, really got us into it long before mm-hmm. it became the popular thing to think, and mm-hmm. it really did change my life. I wish that Gail was able to have changed her life, but in a way, like maybe the one thing she was supposed to do in life was to redirect me. Mm-hmm. So then, in turn, I could redirect my life Mm -hmm. because I was in a really bad place when Gail came along Mm -hmm. and you know she put me on a path and and really I I stuck to the path and Mm -hmm. I feel like she has some bigger issues that she can't get past for anybody listening who doesn't know hmm? anybody listening who doesn't know Gail Gail is is my cousin. cousin and Gail put me on the path of creation and turning negatives to positives and you know even if something bad happens you still got to see the best the best possible thing i think what stands in her way all the time is forgiveness i think forgiveness stands in her way because there's that there's that callus you know what i mean there's that that hurt that that has never been like fully purged. Yeah. And I think I, I watched this movie. I think that the pain is whatever the scar is, is so deep. She would prefer to ignore it than to acknowledge it, fix it and Mm -hmm. move on. And that is also all of the people in my family. That's Julie. Huh? That's Julie. Julie, I guess. I never thought about it that way, but mm-hmm. Aunt Tugger, mm-hmm. Aunt Terry, they'll just, they think that they've gotten past it, but they're so stuck in it that they can't 
they're not willing to go back and look at it in order to get past it. So mm-hmm. they'll just exist past it, mm-hmm. but never fix it. Right, because if you have to look at it for any uh, any amount of time, there might be a moment in there where you're not painting yourself in the prettiest picture. like, And you have to hold yourself accountable for something maybe you aren't ready to hold yourself accountable for. Or you have to, or you have to change the way you think about somebody who you don't want to change the way you think about. Or yeah, that's yeah. I mean, you you paint people in a certain way, and you want to leave them like that. And, the revisionist and I can still history. love them, even yeah. if even if they weren't they weren't perfect. Like mm. I talk crap on Nanny all the time because she had a lot of work that she didn't do, mm. but I still love her. Yeah, I can still love you and know all your shortcomings are. Right. That just makes me. Love you unconditionally, right. because no matter what, I love you, even though you had a whole crap load of baggage that you left on me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't want to look at it. I mean, that's maybe that's one of the things that I want some credit for in life, is that I looked at it, mm-hmm. did the work, got past it, mm-hmm. and still have my moments where it hurts, and I wallow in it, and... I will be roll the a sleeves up, screaming little baby. Roll the sleeves it, up when the hurts. sleeves got to get rolled up. Because you know it, yeah. it hurts. It was painful. But what I want from that is to be acknowledged for the strength to acknowledge it, get past it for the most part, and I acknowledge that I did things wrong, not out of malice, but out of ignorance and be appreciative for that appreciate that I did some things to change mm-hmm. and because I didn't I wanted you guys to have a better shot and to have more happiness mm-hmm. um, when I look at my siblings I just feel sad for them that they've never wanted to do that work mm-hmm. And they look at me like I'm just Pollyanna or something. I'm not Pollyanna. It was mm. it was just as hard for me. Right. But I was strong enough to do the work. Somehow they consider it a weakness. I don't. I, I, the analogy I was trying to come up with earlier was that weightlifters, the strongest men in the world, need people to stand by them right. and help them when they lift that heavy weight. Right. They can't do it themselves. You need a spot. So I had spotters in life, counselors, mm-hmm. that did me a world of good. I've had ones that did nothing for me. Mm-hmm. But I've had good counselors that made me look at myself, made me take responsibility, and made me be uh, empathetic to myself. Mm-hmm. Not feel sorry for myself and wallow in it, but acknowledge that bad things happened Mm-hmm. I have a right to be hurt. I had a right to be angry. Well, you don't I have a deserve right to anything cry. for it. Like, huh? But like you then tell you you don't deserve anything for it. What are you getting for it? Like what validation can you now receive now that's going to make that different? Right. Nothing. You can get nothing for that pain and suffering except for the the the, the knowledge. Like this, the lessons learned within that within that hurt. But you get nothing out like you can you can sit out you can sit up and talk about 
all the times you've been hurt, all the times you've been screwed over, all the times you've lost things and you've had the world and it's been taken from you. And like, just because you're talking about it doesn't mean you're going to get the world back right. because you're talking about it. And my favorite Boy George quotes, the strangest things can shatter kings and take away what's mine. And I, it's embedded in my head forever because you just never know. And so don't put your value in things. Mm. Like that line to me was like, wow. What song is that? I won't be able to think of the song. I could <laughs> sing half of it sing for you. Sing some of it. Yeah, sing some of it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, I usually, I mean, you've listened to a couple episodes of the show, right? So, you know how like I usually wrap up, right? Do what? How you know how I usually wrap up the show, right? I think we should bring in Justin and Jan, Julie and let, or and Justin and Jess and let them wish us a happy birthday. All right. <laughs> so Jerry Springer's final thought for uh, evolving with Corey Castle episode one fifteen. Uh, if you're Jerry Springer and <laughs> this is your final thought as uh, ways to uh, teach life lessons to take away from this conversation. It's really got nothing to do with this conversation, but it's something I learned a long time ago to create the good things in your life. You have to, I have the word create stuck in my mantra all the time. Every time something starts to go bad, think about all the things you're grateful for and your, your mindset will start to come back to creating good things. So I know it sounds corny, but create good things in your life. Create good thoughts. Create good energy. And that's, that's all I have to say. Happy birthday, James. Happy birthday, Mama. I love you. Love you. And thanks for doing this. Mm-hmm. All right. Stepping on the door. So, uh, thanks for hanging with us. If you did, appreciate it. Uh, check out all the other episodes, and uh, if you have any feedback or want to talk to me about anything, you can reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and keep evolving.